was probably about 16. It was the summer and I was home alone. I had just gotten a television in my bedroom, so I had put something on the TV and was laying in my bed. Uh, I kind of drifted off to sleep, sort of in that half-awake, half-sleeping mode, and I thought I heard my dad get home from work. It was about that time. I thought I heard the door at the front of the house. I thought I heard footsteps through the house. I thought I heard somebody come into my bedroom and sit down on the bed next to me. I had a water bed, so it was very obvious that something sat on the bed next to me. Being a teenager, I didn't really want to wake up out of my half sleep, so I just laid there while whatever was playing on the TV was playing, and whoever was there left, and a few minutes later, I decided to get up. There was clearly a spot where it appeared someone had sat on the edge of the bed, and when I went out into the rest of the house, nobody was home. I'm Samantha Engel. And I'm Aaron Gullius, and you're listening to Great Lakes Lore. A podcast where two historians dive into legends of murder, ghosts, cryptids, and more in the Great Lakes region. Today, the paranormal is personal, and we are both live. Not live, but not to you live, but live to each other in <laughs> the studio in the actual same place. IRL. IRL. <laughs> it, it, that's, what, that's what the kids say, right? So today's episode is going to operate a bit differently from the last two and, and possibly from many of them in the future. We wanted to release this before we dove into any of the truly sort of paranormal topics, though, so you could understand current prevailing ideas about the paranormal and what we bring to the table as far as tools we can use to interpret these cases, as well as experiences we've had, our own personal paranormal or paranormal-adjacent experiences. <laughs> we also want to look at ways the current state of paranormal research affects one's own personal experiences or the desire to have a personal experience. So first, let's dive into prevailing ideas about the paranormal. Yeah, so we're going to start off by talking about the history of hunting for the paranormal or people's interactions with it, I guess. And for me, a good place to start is always um, in the early 1800s, the 19th century, if you will, with the Fox sisters. And this is because I am interpreting things from a very Americanist point of view, I will, I will admit to that. But for those of you who don't know, the Fox sisters, Kate and Maggie, lived in Hydesville, New York. And um, one evening in 1848, they claimed to hear rappings, um, knocks on, you know, the, the wood of the house. And and they would ask questions and say, you know, if if you died in this house, knock three times and they'd get three knocks back. So slowly, you know, neighbors came over to look at it. People in town came over to see this happening and it just grew from there. And, you know, before the well, long before the end of their lives, they were traveling throughout the country performing their their feats of, you know, uh, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Um Spiritual communication, I suppose. I was going to say magic. <laughs> sure. <laughs> um, and they certainly were not the first ones to do this. There's a long, long history. As long as people have been alive, you know, they have claimed to be able to speak with the ghosts of those, you know, who've already passed away. Um, and there were already some popular ideas at this time, even that were circulating around in certain circles, things like mesmeri mesmerism. And this is always a fun word, Swedenborgianism. <laughs> 
them. And these, of course, all are named after people. They grew out of these individuals who all claimed new ways to speak to the dead or, you know, what these communications meant about, you know, outlooks on life and death and the afterlife and all of this kind of thing. But the sisters, I think, were able to sort of bring it down to the average folk level um, as opposed to in more of these learned circles. And um, and they became, you know, a show and kicked off sort of this trend in, in the United States of folks going off to watch people try to communicate with the beyond or find signs of life after death. So do you think we could trace paranormal TV back to the Fox sisters? Is Because it, it seems like it's it's less of a sort of, like you said, learned circles yeah. of people attempting to to learn new techniques like Mesmer and Swedenborg and people like that. And more like you said, bringing it to the common people. So yeah. is this like the circus? Is this like <laughs> a, a, a carnival act sort of thing? Or was it was it more high class than that, but lower than, you know, you know, three guys in a mansion from from what I know that the bit that I know I think the Fox sisters definitely could be sort of the pop culture version the the ghost hunter version <laughs> of, of what was going on at the time and then you had you know the the more learned folks I guess if you want to call them that um, or you know the folks who were traveling in these you know highly educated sometimes scientific sometimes religious all right. all of these different elements that were blending together who were you know hang yeah hanging out in their mansions and performing seances <laughs> and doing things like that so there's the pop culture and then the let's get to the bottom of this kind of two pieces of the puzzle but really there are many pieces inside of each piece too so <laughs> So it's it's a jigsaw puzzle of Russian nesting dolls. Yes, okay. that's that's actually a really good. <laughs> that's a good visual. <laughs> um, and I think another reason why it took off at this particular time in the United States specifically was, um, you know, people wanted they wanted proof of something. So at this time, science, Charles Darwin, you know, they were coming up with their theories of evolution, and so religious folks were like, "Oh my gosh!" But if we, you know, this is all just natural selection, then we want proof that there is sort of the spiritual life to everything. And then the Civil War, of course, really kicked off people's need to communicate perhaps with loved ones who had passed away at war who didn't get this idea that they had of a good death, you know, being surrounded by uh, family members able to make your final pieces, right. you know, that kind of thing. And so with with all of these young men and women who were dying long, you know, far, far away from from their families, they wanted to know that they were okay. I'd never considered that Civil War time. Yeah. I mean, I, I guess I knew in my head it's like mm -hmm. post-Civil War, but you're thinking like families and also, you know, veterans of the yeah. war. So there's some post-traumatic mm -hmm. stress yep. elements to it. Yep. So sort of on the more sciencey side of it, in 1882 in Britain, the Society for Psychical Research was established. And this was sort of a, a formalized study of parapsychology, which mostly revolved around psychic stuff. And they did a lot of exposing of frauds, but also a lot of intensive study and investigation in, and still do, they, they, they still exist, into you know what might be real about psychic phenomenon and paranormal phenomenon. And even though they exposed a lot of frauds, skeptics didn't think they were skeptical enough. Believers <laughs> thought they were too skeptical. So that's, that's sort, of, sort of right in the sweet spot. And in the 20th century, what we have are 
organizations like Duke University having a psychical research or parapsychology department at one point. I know it's, it's waxed and waned over the years. And sort of getting conspiratorial, Stanford Research Institute during the 1950s and 60s was doing a lot of government-funded research into ESP and psychic phenomenon, which led to things like the top-secret remote viewing programs trying <laughs> to train psychic spies. So there's a long history of both sort of high-level ivory tower learned interest in paranormal things and also sort of the, the ground-level pop culture side of it. Yeah. So moving from there, one thing that we, you know, Aaron and I spoke about a bit is is where do cryptids fall in all of this? Um, because, um, you know, I think cryptids are definitely part of the paranormal, supernatural, you know, I guess, field, if we want to call it that. Um, they take up a lot of TV, story, podcast, whatever space. Um, but people aren't looking for cryptids for the same reasons that they're looking for dead Aunt Nancy or, you know, something like that. A, a lot of times, one thing that I kept getting stuck on, and I haven't even mentioned this to Aaron yet, so this will be a surprise. Oh, wow. Exciting. <laughs> but, um, you know, cryptids a lot of times grow out of a lot of like folklore, right? Especially when you're looking at the Yeti and the Yaren and, you know, all of these creatures across the globe, not just Bigfoot and the Jersey Devil and Mothman. Um, Mothman's a con maybe not a cryptid. Yeah, we're not getting into that. The words came out of my mouth and I decided you, I needed to stop. But so there's a lot of perhaps still spiritual or at least cultural beliefs tied to some of these different cryptids um, outside of the finding Bigfoot scene on Animal Planet. <laughs> yeah. And I, I think with cryptids, and this is this is a, a point of contention for, <laughs> for me and Samantha. And if you want more on our different views on cryptids, we will put a link to an episode of The Saucer yes. Life where we went to the Michigan Bigfoot Conference this last summer um, and talked about that. But I, I think there is sort of this divide in the Bigfoot community mm -hmm. between the, the flesh and blood Bigfoot. Bigfoot is an undiscovered primate. <laughs> And sort of the the sort of left wing of, of cryptid research, which is Bigfoot is an alien fairy ghost or something like that. Multidimensional being. <laughs> it's clearly in that paranormal field and the UFO field as well falls into or falls victim to that kind of divide. There's the the extraterrestrial hypothesis. What, what people are seeing are structural built craft that have flown here from alien civilizations mm -hmm. all the way to this is a modern expression of the same thing that fairy lore was <laughs> so ufo stuff when it comes around in the 1950s it's got these technological overtones these these overtones of fear of the cold war a lot of those who claimed contact with alien beings were carrying a message they were the prophets of our space brothers who had a better way for us to live here on earth so there, there's always been a heavy crossover between whatever is going on in society and how that is expressed through the paranormal and how that manifests in the culture. Yeah. And since we're historians, we're going to bring this up to the present kind of and, and how people are interacting with the paranormal. And I mean, all you have to do is turn on the television or open up your podcast app <laughs> and you'll find a whole host of 
of paranormal themed things. Um, the sci-fi channel series Ghost Hunters premiered in 2004. I was a big Ghost Hunters fan back in the day. <laughs> Watched it all the time. <laughs> the Taps Boys. And, and after that, many, many shows from Ghost Adventures. Then you do have things that touch on cryptids like Monster Quest and, and even Ancient Aliens, which we all, well, we all don't know this, but some listeners will know that Aaron <laughs> takes great issue. Most of us take great Got issue a lot of problems with, with ancient aliens in, in the history field. But so all of these become very popular. And, you know, there are some hypotheses that in a post 9-11 world, people are looking for they're looking for proof of things. They're looking for proof of an afterlife. They're looking to answers to these folkloric questions or maybe even answers inside of these folkloric questions. And and so, you know, we see the trend that even though folks are, you know, leaving churches, they're we're having more and more people claiming to believe in ghosts and believe in the paranormal itself. For many, belief in the supernatural is comforting. It tells them that things don't end at death. Instead, things continue on. Their, their loved ones are still out there and they can communicate. It's not just, well, I have faith that they're out there, mm-hmm. I hope. It's, it's, I went to the psychic event at the paranormal convention and he told me Uncle Jimmy's proud of me and right. things like that. So the, the simple idea, that this, this idea of hope and that things continue on can be seen as a sort of through line in a lot of things dealing with the supernatural. And when I tell people I'm interested in topics that are weird and paranormal and, and so on, they often ask what experiences I've had. Have I seen a UFO? Have I seen a ghost? Is that why I'm interested? That, that's sort of the assumption. And mm-hmm. it's, it's usually a pretty accurate one. I think a lot of people who are in this field have had those experiences. So personal experiences are often synonymous with, with having an interest in the topic. And because humans use their own lenses of interpretation and perspective on their experiences, eyewitness accounts often are the only evidence, we can say evidence, yeah, evidence <laughs> we have of these paranormal phenomena. And I think it's also interesting considering our profession. Aaron and I are both trained historians. We've both been taught how to analyze sources. And when we take this very critical eye to, you know, something that Samuel Adams wrote during the American Revolution, for instance, (laughs) we are applying, you know, a very a skeptical, a critical eye to it. You know, what what was he thinking at the time? What were his business interests? You know, what was going on? Right. Who was he friends with? What what was his what were his relatives doing? All of these different things. Um, and so we want to know about these people and what their motives could be. And when we're looking at the paranormal, it's important to understand these things too. So as we study these eyewitness accounts and we're trying to understand the phenomena itself, because really that's what we're trying to do what is it that these people experience that we can you know apply to a bigger picture we need to look at these things finally we need to look at the historical context of the situation we want to understand what's happening locally regionally globally Um, we want to know if these things you know whatever the phenomena is you know if it's somebody who saw bigfoot you know was was this present in the popular culture at the time could there have been something else that was going on So we take this approach when we're analyzing, you know, what people would consider mainstream historical documents for our professional research. But we also take this approach when we are looking at um, paranormal experiences as well. Yeah. So many of the stories we cover and will cover in the show rely on personal accounts as the primary form of evidence, whether it's people who saw or heard or talked to 
meet a dudgeon <laughs> yeah. hotel or people who thought a mad gasser was coming in their window. Their personal stories are the primary form mm-hmm. of evidence. So does having our own experiences make us more sympathetic to others' stories or do they make us more likely to believe people? So today, we wanted to share some of our own stories with you and talk about our impressions of how these affect our own views of the paranormal. All right, so let's dive into our stories. The opening story today was an actual experience that I had, um, and one of those that has really stuck with me over the t- over over time. So the, there really was the outline of somebody had. Yes, had been it looked like there. the blanket was pushed in between, you know, the waterbed mattress and the frame of the waterbed. Wow. Yeah. And That's weird. Yeah. And we had always joked um, in our house, you know, whenever a little thing would happen. I mean, I, I watched Goosebumps as a kid. Like, I loved that kind of thing. And, you know, my parents thought it was fun as well. So, you know, so whenever something, you know, electronic went weird <laughs> or, you know, something turned on on its own, which could easily just be a little weird power surge thing or something, we always joked and said it was the ghost. So there were a couple times when I would walk, I walked back to my bedroom and my bedroom door and my sister's bedroom door were like adjacent and she had like this little pair of Christmas trolls and instead of being in her room, they were on the floor, like in the doorway facing out of her bedroom. Oh, like they're watching you. Yes. Wow. <laughs> I was, you know, I called everybody back there and it's like, look at this. Um, and then another time I walked into my bedroom and, you know, some little trinket was sitting upright on my bed as opposed to on the headboard of my bed. So those are our weird little around the house strange happenings. <laughs> that, that is so wild because I, I grew up in a house that was a like, 1860s farmhouse mm-hmm. and I always assumed that there would be ghosts. I always assumed that strange things would happen, but there never were. And I, I assume it's because my parents renovated it extensively, like gutted it and, mm-hmm. and everything. Mm-hmm. So I, I thought that would be sort of the case. So my, you know, my, my first sort of encounter always had an interest in these things, especially the UFO stuff. And one of them is almost an anti-experience. Back in 1996, I think it was, a friend and I were home from college for the summer, and in near where we lived was a crop circle, like a real no fooling crop circle. So we dressed up as what we thought paranormal investigators would dress up like. I think I was wearing like a tweed jacket and like khakis <laughs> and something. It was July in Indiana. It was like 90 degrees. He's calling out numbers and through this like device that he made out of parts that he said was a residual light detector. <laughs> and there's there's a whole bunch of people around. They're, they're looking at us. He'd call out some numbers. I'd I'd repeat them solemnly into a tape recorder. <laughs> 17, 49, 82. Whoa. Did you see that? You know, things like that. And then everybody eventually leaves and we're about ready to leave. And an old guy on like an ATV comes up and he's telling us, you know, they say somebody made this because they found a cigarette in the middle of it. Well, that was my cigarette. I was out here before anybody knew about it, and I don't think any human made this. I got a stack of magazines like you wouldn't believe back home. I could show you. I know all about this stuff. <laughs> but you know that, don't you? Oh. And we're like, what? He's like, you know all about me. I know I know who you guys are. And he's like, we're like, no, we're just... We're just screwing around. We just dressed really well for this. Yes. Can't you tell that we're like 20? You know, it's so basically this guy, this guy thought 
we were like the men in black or something. <laughs> you know, we, you, you look like investigators. I know your type. Then these like weird hippie looking people showed up and they offered to take our fake device into the center of the circle to get readings for us. And we, we declined and got out of there. So it's not really a paranormal experience, but it's, it's an experience where you have something strange going on. And like, like several of my experiences, as you'll hear, they are more valuable for being exposed to people who believe the strange things than for the strange things themselves. So my second story comes from a fun summer that I had while I was in college. I worked on Mackinac Island, and I, th- I think we mentioned Mackinac Island. Yes, in our Legend Legendary Lie episode um, a while back, or last, not a while back. We haven't even L- been last, doing the show for time, a while, yeah. <laughs> last time. Um, just so you all know, I have a dog who's very distracting right now. <laughs> um, but so Mackinac Island has, you know, many different legends and haunted stories as, you know, any... I feel island would just sort of naturally accumulate. And one day I came back, I lived in sort of this dormitory type thing, if you want to call it that, above one of the fudge shops downtown. Mackinac Island is very known for its fudge. <laughs> so, I didn't know there were dorms above the fudge shops. Oh, it was gross. It was a very bad place. Wow. <laughs> um, but I had come up, there was, you know, coin laundry in the building. So I had come up to where my room was, which was just off of sort of the kitchen and the living room area. And I needed to get some coins. So one of the girls who worked, who lived there, worked at a restaurant. And so she always had change because a waitress always has change. (laughs) My grandma was a waitress. I know these things. (laughs) And so I went into my room, got dollar bills, left to exchange this for change. And when I got back to my room, everything on my dresser was pushed off onto the floor. Of course, I assumed People don't generally dislike me, so I didn't think someone had it out for me. I thought, oh my gosh, did someone steal something? So I look through my stuff, nothing is missing, and I had had my wallet lying out on my bed. So, like, they they could have taken a million things. And there was somebody in the kitchen area, and now I had my big Harry Potter book, because that was, that was the summer that Harry Potter 7 came out, Deathly Hallows came out, so that's a big book. <laughs> And that had been on the dresser, and she didn't hear anything happen. I asked her if she saw anybody, didn't see anybody, and it was just one of those moments where it just felt weird, and just just weird enough that it, it didn't feel like it could just be somebody being a jerk <laughs> to me. So just a weird feeling is a good way to describe my next story. I was, I don't know what year it was, 2000? I think it must have been 2000, maybe 2001. I was living in Indianapolis and I went down to visit some friends who were in Bloomington, Indiana, uh, Andy and Shelley, who um, listened to the show. So hi, Andy and Shelley. You'll remember this. We went out to the Morgan Monroe State Forest and there was an old haunted graveyard there. And we were going to explore or, or look at or encounter this haunted graveyard. And we're there and it's dark. And it's like autumn. It's probably October or November. So it's got that, that sort of damp night chill in the air. And we're in this graveyard and we don't see any ghosts. We don't hear anything weird. All we do is all of a sudden we all simultaneously got a feeling like we really needed to get out of there. We all sort of looked at each other and just ran back to the car as fast as we could. So again, nothing, nothing you can point to with any sort of 
material evidence, but you know, those feelings are, are real and maybe it was all in my head, but that's somehow scarier because then you can't do anything about it because it's in your head. If it was in my head. It was in their heads too. Right. So that's, that was again, not necessarily paranormal, but creepy and freaky. So weird feelings also <laughs> play a big part in, in my next story too. Um, so for those of you who don't know, I don't know that we covered this before, but Aaron and I met because I was the director no, of a, yeah. yeah. So I was the director of a small house museum in Flint, Michigan. And, um, Aaron joined as one of our board members and I spent, I was the only employee of this museum. So director meant clean the toilets and apply for grants, (laughs) you know, all of the things. (laughs) Um, so I was alone in the house a lot and it was, um, built, Oh gosh, now I'm testing my knowledge. Originally 1860s, but renovated in in 1885 um, was when this big renovation was done by the Whaley family. A lot of weird things happened there. Sometimes it would be, you know, something small. Like I swear I left, you know, X item in this spot and it's not there. Other times, you know, they're weird creaks and you're like, it's the house settling. (laughs) Um, And I came to very... I recognize the house settling noises. I told myself, you're, you like this stuff, so you're going to believe it's this kind of thing, but that is not what this is. But there were a few times when the things were just a little, a little more than that. One time I was upstairs and it, it was late. Um, a Boy Scout tour had come through in the evening, so they were all gone. I was alone turning off all the lights in the house, and I was upstairs in a bedroom, and I to this day will swear that something whispered in my ear. I just heard this this little, it was like, like so it wasn't intelligible. No, no, no words, no actual oh, words. I was say, what did it say? No, I wish. Yeah. <laughs> but I, I heard the whisper. It was, I mean, and it was close. And afterwards, like my ear just, I don't know if it felt tingly or something, but like it just felt weird. And I turned those lights off and got out of the house as fast as I possibly could. But of course, being an old house in town, folks often asked us if the house was haunted. There was great interest in doing ghost hunts in the house. And so we finally did do a um, ghost hunt. We worked with a group out of Detroit and they came, they did their own ghost hunt. And then we did one where we sold tickets to it. Um, And while there, I got to use uh, dowsing rods. Ah, (laughs) And so at first, it was one of the investigators using the rods. And if you know, look these up if you haven't seen them or else the story will not make much sense. (laughs) But, you know, you hold a short end of this metal rod in your hand and then it sticks straight out and that that part's longer. And so you know, they would say, you know, if the spirits, you know, can answer these questions, you know, if it's no, cross the rods to make an X. And if the answer is yes, you know, widen them. And we were getting responses. They were they were opening and closing as, you know, in response to these questions. So I asked if I could use them because I thought there has to be something. Like, couldn't you just flick your wrist a in trick. a way? There's gotta be yes, a trick to yes. it. Yeah. And at first the the individual was like, Well, well, no, like, you know, I'll have to cleanse them afterwards or somehow. And you know, under the light of the full moon, I'm not really sure. Um, but then she's like, But I guess you can. So she she handed them to me. 
And what you're actually holding on to isn't the rod itself, but it's like a hollow cylinder that the rod sits into. So what you're holding, the rod can then move freely from what you're holding on to. Does that make sense yeah. how I so what, explain that? So if you move your hand, that doesn't necessarily no, it doesn't move, move the rod. Right, right. Okay. Yep. Yeah. Um, and so I started asking questions and those rods moved. I, I don't know how. Um, I have not looked into, you know, other possible reasons that these rods could move. But the thing is, they weren't just like moving willy nilly wildly. It was after a question was asked. I, of course, asked the ghost if it was okay that I was there. And he said yes. (laughs) He or she said yes. So, um, yeah, that was one that 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 really that that really I, I can't explain how that happened. Now I want to try dowsing rods. Yeah, it was really it. It was interesting, and because I always kind of thought they were a bit of hooey. Ghost hunting, sort of. I, I, I've got two ghost hunting experiences under my belt with experienced ghost hunters, and the, the first was with Andy and Shelley, my friends Andy and Shelley, who have uh, are part of a East Central Indiana Paranormal Investigations. I think is the name <laughs> of it. Um, correct me in the comments, guys. And we were in Hartford City, Indiana, and it was a place where there had been action before and they had investigated this place before i believe and they there had been things happen we were there good chunk of the night nothing happens (laughs) so it's interesting to to see how they do things and the readings they take and the attempts to find Mm -hmm. physical manifestations that are measurable and and possibly repeatable but nothing happened when i was there (laughs) which is also what happened the the other time I went ghost hunting in Liverpool, Nova Scotia. Mm. I was there speaking at a, the East Coast Paracon, and one of the events was a ghost hunt in the local cinema theater place. There would always been things happen here. <laughs> Something happened, I think, to the other group. <laughs> the group I was with, nothing happened. I am a ghost repellent. <laughs> they, they just don't want me around, and... I'm just not sure why. And I'd like to, to see if I could make it three for three at some point and do another ghost hunt yeah. and, and see if, if, if anything happens. I don't know if, if it's my, my honestly fear of an actual ghost showing up and freaking me out <laughs> that, that's sort of repelling it or you'd think that would attract it. Right. But no, they nothing. They know you're weak. They know, they know I'm weak. They, thank you, Sam. They, they know I'm weak. They know I'm weak. Um, yeah, so there were... I, Several weird things that happened at the Whaley House, too. And and one of the things that I noticed, w- when you get that weird feeling, and there was a particular area where several rooms kind of come together, and there were a lot of different doorways. And if I just stood there all alone, I always felt like I was being watched. But I'm sure that's just because, you know, y- you like to know where somebody could be watching you from, right? Like, like where could someone sneak up on you? And when you have that many spaces, that many open spaces, doorways, whatever, um, it tends to kind of give you that vulnerable kind of feeling, I guess. Yeah, you've got a heightened situational yeah, awareness. Yeah. So you become hyper aware. Right. But there was one time I was standing in this particular spot and it's where, you know, there's a doorway to the foyer. There's the parlor, the formal parlor, the the music room parlor, the library. And then off of the library, there was this staircase and there was a door to the staircase. And I, I can't explain exactly what the feeling was that I had there. Or, or I guess I, I know the feeling that I had there, but I can't explain what exactly happened. But I had this feeling that something, 
I was looking the other way and there was something in the staircase. And when I turned, I heard the handle, like something jiggled back there. And so that's one of those that it's like, well, this could clearly not be a thing. Um, but <laughs> the dog, <laughs> but it could, um, it could also, it, it could have been a thing. And, you know, sometimes when you feel like you're being watched, you really are being watched. And between the things that I experienced there and, um, I had several different interns and student workers and things, um, just enough weird things that that, that, that's another one that always, that always kind of sat with me as well. <laughs> Those are in, that's interesting. I, I've never experienced that. I'm not sure I want to, but I bet you never wanted to experience this. <laughs> yeah. I've got two more, and this one is one's weird and one's sinister. Uh, this is the sinister one. So back around 2004, I had too much time on my hands, and I was on the internet a little too much, and I got involved with arguing with and debating a a woman who was named Sherry Schreiner. And uh, she had some weird theological ideas about aliens. And so I was arguing with her about things. I was using a pseudonym because, you know, you have to. But my operational security was weak. And she sends me an email saying, you know, here's your name. Here's where you work. Here's your address. And so I'd, I'd go tell my wife. It's like, yeah, this sort of weird, crazy person kind of knows who I am. And I've been harassing her. And she thinks I'm either a demon or a CIA agent <laughs> or a demonic CIA agent. Ooh, even worse. She read it in the Bible codes. So it must be true. <laughs> So I just I just sort of shut that down and just I just sort of ghost the whole thing and, and I never ever go back. But I kept tabs on her over the years, um, waiting for her to, this sounds horrible, waiting for her to die so I could feel safe. <laughs> and uh it turns out she wasn't the first one to die. One of her followers was, um, who was murdered by another one of her former followers. Other people had committed suicide based on what she had taught. She had a whole cult going and she died of natural causes a, a couple years ago. And there are now documentaries out there about this person. I had these interactions with 16 years ago, 17 years ago <laughs> um, that I just got a feeling this person believes things that are not only strange. This person believes things that are strange and dangerous. Mm. So maybe I should get out. And that's one of the things about extremely sort of fringe beliefs is that sometimes the people who believe them can can take strange actions and mm -hmm. be dangerous. Yeah. And so so this last story I have is is my non-story. And I threw it in here just as proof that I'm not going to think every old house is haunted. I was going to say. <laughs> I don't want you all thinking that about me. Um, I, I am more critical than that. So I currently work at a different historic house. I work at an organization that has a historic house that I'm in charge of. People always ask me, well, is this haunted on a tour? Have you ever had anything weird happen? And I haven't. The house has never felt weird. I have never, you know, even if I hear a weird noise someplace, I, you know, it's like, that's just the house settling. That's the wind. That's a mower outside, you know, whatever it might be. And the family who lived there, they did a lot of good things during their lifetime. And so one day I thought, well, I'm just going to sit here alone and I'm just going to record and see if I can get any EVPs or anything. And I got nothing. So... Explain what an EVP oh, is. Oh, yeah, sure. I should do that. Um, EVP stands for electronic voice phenomenon. And the idea is that if you're trying to communicate with spirits or the beyond or whatever, perhaps they are just not able to communicate with us on a wavelength that the human ear can pick up, but perhaps your device can. So then when you listen back, you might find answers or 
responses or, you know, things yelling at you, telling you to get out and leave and you're going to die or something so like that. They're speaking to us on a frequency we can't hear, but our devices, but our devices can pick up. And then we can hear. And then we can hear. Okay. <laughs> yes. Just making sure I had that straight. Um, yeah. So n- nothing. 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 And I have never felt weird. You know, every, the attic is a little creepy and there have been a few times where I've walked up there and I think, was that, is that where that was before? <laughs> you know, did I leave that in that place? But there are also several different people. You know, we have, you know, pest management people. We have um, other history staff. You know, so many people going in and out of there that I've never once, like, truly thought, like I did at the Whaley House, <laughs> that, you know, oh, my gosh, something was moved and it wasn't moved by anything human, you know. Right, so right. so my, my current house, not haunted. <laughs> now, my, my last story is the most recent one was this summer. And I was down in West Virginia, in Mothman country, in Point Pleasant, West Virginia. And I was driving through, if you're familiar with the Mothman story, the TNT area, the old, now it's McClintock Wildlife Preserve, but it was the TNT area at the time. And I'm driving down this very narrow gravel road, and there is a, a, a car that I'm following. It's a, a black Cadillac. And they pull off to the side to let me pass. And so I do, but then I'm, I'm suspicious of why they might be following me because I'm suspicious. So I sort of do a little thing where they get in front of me. And so then I'm behind them and I'm, I'm following them and they go, I'm probably about 20 feet behind them. They go up over a rise and then around a corner. That's the way the road goes. I go up over the rise. I go around the corner. That car isn't there. <laughs> It's gone, and I don't see anywhere where it could have gone, and I don't think a giant Cadillac was going to go fast enough to be out of visual range mm-hmm. that quickly, and I didn't really think about it until I stopped for a second. Mothman, Men in Black, huge part of the Mothman story. I am right there. What did Men in Black drive? Black Cadillacs. That's a sort of common thing. I was freaked out because <laughs> then I was like, I, I, I told you, I, I yes. sent you like a little video <laughs> thing. You and some some other friends I was like, uh, this is this is like hot off the press. This is what happened to me. In case I don't come back. In case I don't come back, <laughs> the Men in Black got me, and it was very weird because when I tried to think about it, I could not remember seeing anybody through the windows. I saw things. I could not. It was like that face amnesia mm-hmm. thing, and. Logically, I know that's because I probably wasn't paying attention. Right. I wasn't looking for a face, but it, it's it's just that was weird. That's probably that's probably the the, the freakiest thing mm-hmm. that that's the freakiest feeling of not just what was that or was that the men in black, but just not being able to clearly remember something that you should have. Mm-hmm. And why are these details not crystallizing? In my mind, the, the way they should. Very much like my the story with the the door to the stairway that closed. Like I, it's like I don't. Why can't I figure like? And again, it's because you're not paying attention to all the details. But it's like, what was the exact chain of events that that happened? I I don't know. But feeling then the door was like closing, handle jiggling, right. snapping kind of shut. So yeah, but it, it you can't figure it out exactly. No, and <laughs> it, it's 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 very strange. It, it's it's very strange, but they make good stories, they do. don't they? <laughs> yeah, we, we, we hope you think they make yes. good stories. So um, let's take a break for our usual Midway segment. Next time. 
It's the Dog Man. You can subscribe to Great Lakes Lore at greatlakeslore.com or wherever you find podcasts. And be sure to follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. The links are in the show notes. Great Lakes Lore relies on listener donations rather than advertising. If you like what you hear and want to hear more, there are links in the show notes and at greatlakeslore.com to contribute. And be sure to reach out with your questions and comments on this episode for the next installment of our Monday Mail Call. And just so you know, we generally record those on Fridays. So you have from Monday when it drops to, you know, midday Friday generally to uh, to get those questions in. Yes. And now it's time for Legend or Lie. And in Legend or Lie, we take turns going back and forth trying to stump the other person <laughs> with something that is either a legitimate, not necessarily true, legend, something that has a, a myth, mythic history or past mm-hmm. or some sort of story that's out there in the uh, the ether, or something we just made up. And right now, the score is 0-0. Zero, zero. Neither of us have gotten this right. So here's, here's the story. Rural Minnesota, summer of 1964. There's a woman named Edna Strickfield who reported a UFO landing. It's a landing, not just a sighting, like an actual on-the-ground landing in the field behind her house. And this is southern Minnesota, so it's the part that's basically Iowa. So (laughs) it's like, well, what about the woods and the lake? No, southern Minnesota. (laughs) And she was the only one home. Her husband and son were on a Boy Scout camp out. So she goes outside to take a closer look because she's not sure what it is. She's not Mm -hmm. sure if it's a piece of debris from like an aircraft or what. It's round. It's not like a saucer it's just sort of round i think the the drawings of it that i've seen make it look like a tuna can <laughs> so it's round but it's sort of stumpy so as she approaches it edna notices a small door opens and out comes this is what she said three small people like under a foot tall and she was about she said 15 feet away from them and she could hear them making noise and she said it didn't sound like any like human speech mm but it didn't sound like any animal she'd ever heard. So after a few minutes, they go back in the object and the door closes and it lifts up into the air and within a few seconds, it was out of sight. And Edna told the story to the local paper and it was picked up in some flying saucer newsletters. But for the most part, this is one of those stories that uh, is really weird, but never really got enough attention. So what do you think? So... There's a part of me that thinks with all of this detail, it is surely a lie, but then <laughs> because you were trying to make it sound real, but then my mind also says, but wait, that could, he, he could have said that to make you think that it's a lie for that reason, but really this is true. <laughs> so what do you so think? So I'm going to say, I'm going to say lie. This is very much like several cases of strange humanoids landing in craft around the United States at various Mm -hmm. times. But as far as I know, it is not one. It is a lie. (laughs) So we will at some point be, so you, you were correct. So you are, you are, I get the point. Yes. You're it's, you're, we're, um, we're, we're one, one and no. Uh, so you win. And at some point we will be covering the humanoid wave, uh, of 1972, at least the mid, the, the, the mid lakes, the great lakes <laughs> part of it. So, uh, go. good job, but, good uh, story. yeah, thanks. <laughs> I, I, I thought the tuna can spaceship was a, yeah, that probably, 
So that when you yeah. said the drawings that I had seen, I thought, well, that would give it away if <laughs> that, that yeah, that's, I, that's yeah. what made me. That, yep. I, I wasn't going to say that, but I was like, maybe this will make it sound more real <laughs> right. if I say there were drawings. It was just um, a slip up. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So, oh, well, I, I'm not a good liar, Sam. I'm a very honest person. Okay. So thanks for listening to Legend or Lie. And now back to the show. Regardless of what origins these phenomena may be, whether prosaic or inexplicable, I'm increasingly convinced that one of the roles they play in their frustrating, tricksterish way is to humble us. This constellation of events and ideas torments us by being seemingly forever out of reach of our powers of observational and empirical investigation. Part of this, I believe, is to put us in our place, to show us that not everything in our world is susceptible to logic and reason. So now before we dive into a conversation about how those stories that you just heard Aaron and I share affects our personal outlook on the paranormal or the way that we look at other um, eyewitness testimony of things that have happened, we wanted to look at some of the things that color people's experiences with the paranormal. So we did a little a little digging around, a little research on this, and we'll provide links to several of the articles that we um, read in the show notes. Um, but there have been several studies that um, have looked at the way people experience the paranormal, and most of them boil down to this point. Um, individuals who already believe or have been primed to believe in a supernatural or paranormal occurrence are more likely to find the paranormal in an event. There was Makes one. Yeah, right. Yes. Makes sense. Perfect sense. <laughs> um, if, if one believes in ghosts, they're going to think that the creaking upstairs is a ghost. <laughs> um, <laughs> One study that I read about in Amsterdam showed that folks who were made to believe in a supernatural experience were more likely to see a figure, a human form, walking when it was just a a random light display. So by hearing that story, they then, you know, saw what they were primed to believe. And we also see kind of the countering of this, if you want to call it that, in shows like, I'm thinking of Ghost Hunters in particular, it formed a lot of my childhood, <laughs> or not childhood, young, I was like, Wait teen, a minute, teenage no. and early 20s, Samantha. Um, and, you know, whenever they thought they had an EVP or, you know, something, you know, showing up on a video or something, and they showed it to the client, um, you know, they didn't tell the person what they thought they heard or what they thought they saw initially. They wanted to see what they thought first so that they were able to get kind of an uninfluenced right. <laughs> reaction. Right. Obviously, since they were showing them a thing, though, the person knows they think there's something in this clip. Right. right. <laughs> so so they, they were trying, I think. But it was te- it was television. Um, And there are a few other ideas from psychology, too, that can help us to understand the ways that people experience the paranormal. Uh, One particular um, thing I came across was called expectant attention. And this can help us explain situations where our own hope to see something causes us to misinterpret a visual clue. So if I'm in the woods and I really want to see Bigfoot there, I could easily misinterpret shadows, 
um, cast by foliage to be Bigfoot, right? Yep. (laughs) Um, And and similarly, cognitive dissonance can help us to explain the lengths that some people will go to to explain explain away evidence that contradicts one's beliefs in the supernatural. So it's easier for our minds to explain away, you know, like, oh, well, that wasn't really a figure that you saw. It was this instead. Your mind is going to make up an excuse for that instead of changing its whole belief system. Um, And that's why there was a particular article we can link to that was talking about um, the Loch Ness Monster in particular, because they've done at this point, even like environmental DNA studies of the area. (laughs) And there's there's no um, plesiosaur DNA there. (laughs) Right. Right. Um, But for some people, it's easier to explain. Well, but that's not 100 percent accurate instead of saying, okay, fine, Nessie doesn't exist. (laughs) So with these thoughts in mind and understanding how complicated our brains are and how strong our biases and predilections might be, we now want to look at the ways in which our own personal experiences have affected the way we've looked at other personal paranormal narratives. So I guess I'll start. (laughs) Yeah, go ahead. Um, uh, So, I mean, as, as you can probably gather at this point, I, you know, I like this stuff and and I, I'm the type of person who likes to believe in things because it seems more mysterious, magical, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Like big it'd be cool if Bigfoot was real because it'd just be cool if Bigfoot was real, right? <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, um and, and so, you know, in in approaching these topics though, I try I try to be aware of of what my own biases are about the world around me, spiritually, you know, all of these different things. Mm-hmm. And I also want to make sure that even if I'm not completely buying at face value everything a person is telling me or, you know, a narrative that I read says, because I've had my own experiences that you know, I can't explain. Perhaps somebody else could explain them, though. But I certainly wouldn't want somebody coming at me telling me how foolish I am, how silly it was. You know, any, you know, maybe your when you laid down, the the bed sheet was already crumpled in between the mattress and the bed frame. Uh, okay, cool. Yeah, maybe. Um, <laughs> but and it's fine that if somebody else doesn't believe what I'm telling them, but I want them to respect the fact that in the moment I felt a thing, I guess. And so that's sort of the attitude that I want to take into other people's experiences, you know, aside from, of course, that that critical historian eye that we talked about at the beginning of the show. Right. And finding that balance is difficult. You don't want to, you know, mock somebody's like, of of course, that was stupid. Of course, (laughs) the blanket was pushed down. (laughs) Sam, come on. (laughs) But at the same time, I'm not going to go around and say, my friend Sam saw a ghost when she was a kid, like in her room. Yeah. It's like, there's this fine line between like, just sort of acknowledging, yep, you had that experience. Mm -hmm. That's, that's dynamite. Mm -hmm. Great. Mm -hmm. Wonderful. And people, especially on a larger stage, especially people who are profiting from their stories, just blindly overlooking massive inconsistencies and and, and problems. And and honestly, often simple explanations. Mm -hmm. And as you all can probably tell, I am much more I don't want to say skeptical because I'm I'm not. I I find <laughs> I find all of these things fascinating. I don't necessarily think any of them are necessarily true in the way that they are popularly perceived to be true. Mm. And my biggest point of interest in 
all of these phenomena are the individuals and groups and those dynamics within those groups and how these beliefs are shaped by the culture. That's my, my research and writing is all much more about that than about the phenomena itself because you can get a handle on that. I don't know what somebody may have seen, but I know what they said about what they saw. <laughs> right. And I know how those ideas were taken and and sort of changed. And the way that my own experiences have informed this is is basically that I have learned in some situations you absolutely cannot trust your perceptions. Yeah. And you cannot necessarily trust your memories. Mm-hmm. I'm sure there was some elderly man driving that Cadillac in West Virginia. <laughs> I'm almost positive. I know there was nothing in that graveyard that should have spooked us. At the same time, how do I know that my cynicism or skepticism or trepidation during those ghost hunts didn't sort of blind me to things I may have been Mm -hmm. otherwise able to observe? Sort of the opposite of expectant Mm -hmm. attention, right? Right. (laughs) Um, Sort of expectant avoidance, or I don't know (laughs) what you could, expectant suppression of attention. (laughs) I don't know what you could call it, but I I, I have learned that you you can't, you can't trust your own senses sometimes mm-hmm. and and you and that doesn't mean you didn't experience something it just mm-hmm. means it might it might have been even weirder than you perceived it might <laughs> right. have been taking place at a level where you sensed something but something much more sort of multidimensional mm-hmm. was was going on mm-hmm. so i think you know, the big takeaway from my experiences is well, is don't don't necessarily rely on your own mm-hmm. your own senses and observations as reality. <laughs> and two, be very careful about weird people who do <laughs> and um, maybe stay away from them sometimes yeah. because uh, that's another thing. Uh, don't don't rile people up. <laughs> I, I don't, maybe you're running a cult somewhere, Sam, and I don't want to get on the <laughs> wrong side of that. I think the other thing that that sort of just came to me with that, too, is, um, you know, looking for multiple perspectives of the same thing yeah. right so i think that's something that can tend to lend credence when i'm you know listening to a haunted story or a ghost story or when i was at the whaley house and you know my intern had an experience he came into my office super freaked out he had this, this white like this look on his face of being totally disturbed and he said were you just out in this room that I was in and I said no I've been sitting here the whole time and he said I swear I just heard a woman clear her throat behind me and so that was like oh maybe I'm not making all this up in my head Um, because somebody else has now had you know something else happen and so you know that can feel a little validating too yeah Um, yeah that multiple yeah. independent accounts yeah. of similar things. Yep. I know for UFO stuff, it, it's very, very much more credible if a bunch of people who mm-hmm. don't know each other and didn't talk to each yeah. other all saw that weird light <laughs> or the little people coming out of the right. tuna can in <laughs> southern Minnesota. So once again, we're coming back to this idea of people wanting to have a paranormal experience, though, and that's how we're going to close out this episode. We mentioned at the beginning that people want to believe in these things because they want to feel the comfort. They want to know that, you know, there is a life after death or we don't just disappear or that there's <laughs> when life we die. elsewhere, elsewhere on the planet. There, there's yep, civilizations exactly. that got it right. Yeah. You know, that we aren't doomed to this militaristic <laughs> right. materialistic existence, that there are other realities, other mm-hmm. other peoples out there who can guide us. 
or or humans have not pillaged the entire earth and right. there are still big feet that live out in the forests of or civilizations <laughs> the northwest or civilizations inside the hollow earth yes. or or any number of things i think most paranormal phenomenon like you said come down to this this hope of yep. some kind if not yep. life after death then yep. something else yep one in 5 people according to a 2014 study believe they've seen a ghost Nearly three quarters of Americans believe in some aspect or some piece of the paranormal. So why do people want to experience the paranormal beyond this hope? And what are other reasons that might be out there? And, and how do we see these things manifesting? So part of this, I think, could definitely be the thrill, right? Yeah. You know, when we go to one of these haunted locations, when we're on the ghost hunt, um, we get scared. Yeah. And I think we, we need to, like, make the differentiation. You know, there are the, we're, we'll call them like the fake haunts, the manufactured yeah. haunts versus the haunted locations. Let's we can right. call them that, perhaps. Right. Um, but but regardless of which which of these places you're visiting, um, when you're scared, your these hormones are going to be released. That feeling can be rather addicting. And there can also be an excitement in this idea of conquering your fear, whether it's going into the abandoned building after dark, hopefully with people who have let you in there. Not <laughs> Yeah, do not trespass, folks. We're no, not, no trespassing. We're not, we're not endorsing that. Um, or, or, you know, you're visiting your local manufactured haunt, you know, that pops up every October. And interesting fact, I didn't put it in here, but I will tell you, a lot of people will track the, um, the haunted attraction back to Disneyland's Haunted Mansion. So another aspect of this is supernatural travel or supernatural oriented travel, not like teleportation, <laughs> things. supernatural tourism, maybe and these affinities, these interests have kicked off an entire industry of this supernatural tourism, and it can be looking for UFOs or over Area 51 or hunting for ghosts at Eastern State Penitentiary treks to find the Yeti or the, the poor non-existent Loch Ness Monster. <laughs> people are traveling to actual locations looking for and hoping for answers. And I've, I've done this. I've, yeah. been, I've been to Roswell. <laughs> I, I've been to Point Pleasant looking for Mothman mm -hmm. three times now. Mm -hmm. um, people do it. Yeah. And spend big money. And the one differentiation we wanted to make sure that we made, because it was something that you and I didn't really make or didn't realize that there there was necessarily this differentiation is between that supernatural travel versus dark tourism. Nice. Um, I thought that dark tourism was just sort of anytime you're traveling to see scary things. Right. <laughs> um, but there are actually a lot of academics, experts out there in the field who don't want to conflate these two things because they see dark tourism as actually visiting these different sites of disaster and suffering, places like Chernobyl or um, concentration camps or even, you know, the article that I, I was reading through in the World Trade Centers at yeah. this point, visiting, you know, slave quarters at plantations. Um, you're going there with a hope to connect to the past and to understand some of these darker sides of history. History isn't just this lovely ascendant narrative right. <laughs> of, of all good things happening. Um, but there are these dark pieces of it, and maybe we can learn lessons through that. Now, of course, places like this could have ghost hunts. I'm not saying that they don't. And we often associate these places of suffering as being places that, you know, they have the emotions and the memories trapped there. So there are going to be ghosts there, right? Right. 
right. um, but that that is not dark tourism. That is, you know, more the supernatural tourism aspect. But when you're going there to appreciate this history, to to learn from it, that's that's sort of what the experts are referring to as dark tourism. Which isn't a concept I was familiar with before you told me about it <laughs> when we were working on this episode. Yeah. So we hope you've enjoyed this traipsing through our uh, <laughs> our perspective paranormal pasts and, and sort of our perspective on the paranormal as we launch into uh, a series of episodes that are a little bit more paranormal for this remainder of the the spooky dark end <laughs> of the year season yeah yeah i mean we're going to be tackling uh dogman ghosts witches <laughs> All yeah. kinds of things in our in our next several episodes. And so we wanted to make sure that we sort of, I don't want to say set some ground rules, but sort of laid out a map, perhaps, that people can follow. And maybe we've talked about a few terms or a few ideas that... Um, that it will be good to reference, good to keep in the back of your mind, and also understand where Aaron and I specifically are coming from, because we hadn't really, you know, talked about that before. And, and if we tried <laughs> to do this in the next episode, there wouldn't have been any room for Dogman. No, and we need room for Dogman. <laughs> we need lots. Make, make room for Dogman. That's the new movie that should be made. Thanks for listening. The Paranormal is Personal was written and produced by Samantha Engel and Aaron Gullius. Our music is by Raphael Crux. Great Lakes Lore is a Chizo Media production. Chizo Media. Our heart is with the people. Until next time, don't get lost in the lore. <laughs> <laughs>